For the uh, past few weeks, we've been in a series called When God Asks the Questions. And in this series, we've just been walking through and looking at some different questions that God has for human beings that we find in Scripture. Of course, one of the questions that we've talked about, not that we've, you know, that God asked, but one of the questions when it comes to the questions that God asks, hopefully that's not too confusing for you, is that why would God ask the questions, right? If he's the one who knows it all, then what is the reason for him asking the questions? And of course, as we've looked at, the reason is because it's not for his benefit. He already knows the answer, but rather it is for our benefit. And I hope that through this series, you have been benefited. I hope you've been challenged and encouraged by the questions that we've looked at so far in this series. But before we get to our final question today, and we'll move into a new series next week, as many of you know, I am a huge sports fan. And if you follow sports very long, you realize that one of the things that can happen is that things can change really quickly, right? In the midst of a game, in the midst of a season, and even season to season, things can change in the blink of an eye. I was thinking about this this week as, uh, of course, Michigan and Michigan State played yesterday, and um, we all know who won. Uh, or if you don't, you know, then uh, Go Green should suffice to, uh, to make sure you know who won. Uh, but I was looking at the, the records of both teams. So our, our two main colleges in our, in our state uh, won a combined four games last year. Four. Now, it was a little bit of a shortened season, but two teams won a combined four games. Well, this year they've already combined to win 15 games now. One team has won one more than the other. Again, I'll let you figure out who that is. But it's just evidence that things can change in the blink of an eye. From year to year, season to season, things can change. And every now and then, things can happen that you maybe never saw coming. That's probably why at the beginning of each and every year, Whoever your team is, every fan says something to the effect of, maybe this will be our year, right? Or if you're at the end of one of those seasons, you say, maybe next year, right? Maybe this will be our year. But that reality, that statement, that cry isn't just one for fans of sports teams. This was the cry of the Israelites throughout their history. There's more than likely a blank page in between your Old Testament and your New Testament that separates the two. And that blank page represents roughly 400 years of time passing between the last event recorded in the Old Testament and the first event recorded in the New Testament. First, or 400 years of the Jewish people saying, in essence, maybe this will be our year. Maybe this will be the year. Maybe this will be the year that God acts and the Messiah will come and deliver us from the Roman Empire in much the same way that God sent Moses to deliver our ancestors from the Egyptian Empire. Maybe this will be our year. And finally, it seemed like the year had arrived when Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene. As we talked about last week, he comes on the scene healing the sick and feeding the thousands and walking on the water. He's got the miraculous power of God at his fingertips. And then when he begins to speak, he speaks about the kingdom of God 
and the kingdom of heaven, and, and it would get all the people of Israel riled up and pumped up, and you know this was it. This is what they were waiting for. They knew Jesus was up to something grand, and for 400 years, really even longer than that, they had been waiting for it. Now it finally seems like their hero, their year, their time has arrived. And so in every part of the gospel, of every gospel, there is this frenzy that builds and builds with Jesus coming on the scene between his miracle working power as well as his talk about the kingdom. And yet somewhere along the line, doesn't take too long that he starts talking and saying some things that they don't always like, but somewhere along the line in each of the gospels, their excitement about him begins to turn into confusion about him and what he's truly about. And this would particularly rise when he began to speak in parables and tell stories to describe what this kingdom is all about. He not only says the kingdom is coming, but then he starts to describe what this kingdom is all about. And there may be no parable more disorienting and confusing to the people who were following Jesus than the parable and the subsequent question that we're going to look at today. We find it in Mark chapter 4, so if you want to turn there uh, with me in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. Here's what Mark writes. He says, Again, Jesus said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Well, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Well, our series on the questions that God asks in Scripture brings us to this final question we're going to look at today. The question that Jesus asks, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? It is a rhetorical question. Nonetheless, it's one that I thought we ought to look at as we close out our series today because it's a question that Jesus asks about his favorite subject to talk about, the kingdom of God. He talks about that subject more than he talks about any other subject. And I don't think it would be very wise on my part to look at some of the questions that God asks in the Old Testament and some of the questions that God in the flesh asks in the New Testament and yet leave out the one question that he asks about his favorite subject. Now when I say kingdom of God or some places we read kingdom of heaven, don't necessarily think just about heaven and what's going on in the heavenly realms because when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he was talking about the way that God's kingdom, God's reign, God's rule, the way God works in this world, not just about heaven, but God here and now working in this world that we are living in. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about exclusively the world beyond the grave, but he's talking about God at work in this world on this side of the grave. And when Jesus likens the kingdom of God to, of all things, a mustard seed, it really did throw everyone off. Nobody was, was really expecting him to say that. In fact, a mustard seed probably would have been the last thing that they would compare their idea of the kingdom of God to. A Palestinian mustard seed was the proverbial standard for how small something was in the Middle Eastern culture. 
even Jesus, probably the most famous time he uses the example of a mustard seed is in Matthew chapter 17 when he uses it to describe how even a mustard seed of faith God can do something extraordinary with. Even the smallest of faiths God can do extraordinary things with. It took 750 mustard seeds just to equal one gram of weight. And in the first century Middle East, among a crowd that is predominantly Jewish and very fairly familiar with the Old Testament, it is an insult and not a compliment to compare something to a mustard seed. So tiny, so insignificant. After all, the Old Testament books of Judges and Ezekiel and Daniel all liken the great empires of that day to massive trees like the cedars of Lebanon. And now Jesus comes along and he says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds. It's not even a big seed, right? I mean, it's a a seed, but it's not even a big seed, much less a cedar tree. They need the kingdom of God to be bigger than that, because being small, not necessarily physically, but in terms of their nation and their power, is exactly their problem as far as they're concerned. And all this time, they've been living with the hope in their hearts that cries out, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the year. Maybe this will be the year that the Messiah finally comes, and then the Messiah finally does come, and he raises the dead, and he heals the sick, and he feeds thousands. He has the miracle-working power of God at his fingertips, and then he begins to speak of the kingdom as though it's like a mustard seed. Say, what? No, 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 no. We need something bigger. Jesus. They, they need something bigger if they're going to be delivered from Roman, Roman rule and oppression. To be big is to be powerful, right? The bigger, the better. And Rome is the epitome of big and powerful. Everything Rome does is big, and, and, and everything they stand for is big and powerful and mighty. And now Jesus says that the kingdom they've been waiting for, this kingdom that's supposedly supposed to you know, dwarf over every other kingdom, is like a mustard seed. Great. Just great. Absolutely great. What we were looking for exactly. But Jesus must have released at least some of the tension when he got to the latter part of the parable, the part where he says that even though it is the smallest of seeds, when it grows, it becomes the largest of all garden plants, even to the point of being big enough so that the birds of the air could perch in its branches. And so in, in some ways, even though Jesus kind of starts off insignificantly and, and quite questionably in their minds, at least he's getting closer to where they want him to be. It's probably there, though, that they were really lost in his words. They were probably so preoccupied with the part of Jesus talking about the picture of the kingdom of God as a tree with birds perching in its air, perching in its branches. We're going to focus on that part. Forget the mustard seed. It grows. It's bigger. That's what we want to focus on. Starting to get pumped up about how wonderful this kingdom is going to be, that it's bigger, it's stronger, that they begin to lose the essence of what Jesus was saying. And I, I think in some ways that's the temptation for us as well, to kind of focus on the latter part of that and, and look at the kingdom and what, you know, what God brings about. And I, I think that's important to, to understand the, the bigness of the results of God's kingdom and God's rule and God's work on the earth and how big it will be one day. I don't, I don't think anyone in the crowd would argue with him about that. But rather, I think he's, he's telling this parable, though, to emphasize 
in many ways, how small God's work, God's kingdom, God's activity seems to be on some days. It's as small as a mustard seed, barely even visible to the human eye, and yet out of such tiny and seemingly insignificant beginnings, a difference is made that has world-changing consequences. And I think Jesus' question of what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, and then answering it with this parable about a mustard seed, leads us to some significant takeaways for our own lives today. Here's the first one. It warns us to beware of being hypnotized by size. Beware of being hypnotized by size and bigness, and, and yet that's very easy to do, isn't it? And even though 2,000 years have come and gone since Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 4, people are still, we are still hypnotized by size, captivated, captivated by bigness. Speaking of bigness, I was fascinated by an article that I read entitled, The World's Largest and Most Expensive Family Home. I'm assuming none of you are owners of that because I didn't see any of your names attached to it. But the Antilia House, as it's called, was built in Mumbai, India. As the article says, here's what it says, it is a frightening reality. Their words, not mine. Egregiously boasting 27 stories at 568 feet high with a total area of almost 400,000 square feet of living space, to which I'm sure most of you ladies are thinking, well, who's going to clean that? That's your first thought, right? What at first glimpse looks and sounds like a typical skyscraper is far from it. It is, in fact, a $1 billion family home built for India's richest man, his wife, and three children. The article goes on to say, constructed within a country estimated to have one-third of the world's poorest population, the home truly exemplifies the disease of excessive consumption, extreme wastefulness, and unsustainable living that is permeating today's society. The building, which took nearly three years to complete, has 27 stories, as I read just a moment ago. And although, the, because the owners didn't settle for standard ceiling heights, even though it's only 27 stories, it actually has capacity to go about 60 stories. It stands on Mumbai's Altamount Road, which is prime real estate in the dense metropolis there, towering open studio, a swimming pool, a ballroom, guest rooms, a variety of lounges, and a 50-seat cinema. Three helicopter pads have been installed on the roof, and a car park with uh, capacity for 160 vehicles sits on the ground floor. Speaking of cleaning, by the way, obviously that's more space than one housekeeper can keep up with or even a full hotel staff can keep up with. And so the owners employ, get this, a staff of 600 to tend to the home. Although, as the article does state, despite the large staff, the kids are still required to clean their home or clean their rooms, so there is at least that, right? But experts say that no other private property of comparable size and prominence exists anywhere in the world. By the way, I read the whole article. You know why? Because we're obsessed with size, right? And so we want to figure out all of these things and read all of the dimensions and all of those things. The bigger, the better, right? We've got big houses, we've got big cars, we've got big TVs and big toys, not just for kids, but for adults as well. 
big this, big that. You can supersize your fries and drink at McDonald's. You can king-size them at Burger King. You can biggie-size them at Wendy's, and we'll supersize this and biggie-size that because we're hypnotized by size. We love taking in big things and being a part of big things, and yet the kingdom of God that you and I are a part of was at one time just an embryo inside the womb of a young Jewish woman. It was at one time a baby born in the stench of a stable, cradled in a feed trough. It was at one time a poor carpenter's son with no place to lay his head. It was at one time a man who was deserted by all of his closest friends as he hung and died on a cross. It was at one time nothing more than a band of ordinary, uneducated fishermen and zealots This kingdom of God that you and I are a part of today was at one time encased in mustard seeds such as these. And yet within a few centuries, this penniless teacher from Nazareth was acknowledged as Lord by the very empire that had crucified him, Rome itself. And what had begun with him and a band of retired fishermen and zealots has blossomed into the movement that for 20 centuries has been growing and expanding into the very tree and whose branches you and I make our nests and find our shade in today. So beware of being hypnotized by size. Leads me to a second takeaway. Our God is in the business of bringing magnificent endings out of tiny beginnings. Our God is in the business of bringing magnificent endings out of tiny beginnings. In the kingdom of God, magnificent endings often come from tiny beginnings. And I think this is so important for us to grasp because, again, we all tend to be hypnotized by size and bigness. But one of the problems with being hypnotized by size is that we can be prone to the power of suggestion when we're under hypnosis. And this is particularly true when it comes to the enemy whispering in our ear. Because when we're hypnotized by the size of something that we admire, and it may, it may even be a good thing that we, that we admire, something worth admiring, something worth uh, emulating, but we can be prone to, to stand there wishing that we could be more like it or, or that we could have it instead of actually moving to action because we're so far removed from it that we really don't bother to do anything about it or strive to emulate it in our lives. On the flip side, when we're hypnotized by the size of something terrible or tragic or something that we're having to go through in our lives, we're prone to stand there being intimidated by it and yet feeling like there's nothing we can do about it or in the midst of it. The problem with being hypnotized is that so often it leads you and me to being paralyzed from action. And yet Jesus is calling us to look at the world around us through the lens of this parable. That God brings magnificent endings out of tiny beginnings. And looking at the world through this lens makes me wonder what God may be up to when it comes to the mustard seeds in our lives. Because I guarantee you that there are some tiny beginnings Some tiny steps, maybe even seemingly insignificant or insignificant steps that he desires for you and me to engage in that he wants to bring magnificent endings out of. And then finally, the last takeaway is this. God brings forth magnificent endings from the inside out and through sacrifice. This may come as a surprise to you, but I do not have a Ph.D. in botany. 
Uh, I know some of you are shocked at that, but, uh, but I do know this. When a seed is transformed into a plant or a tree, what actually happens is the embryo within the seed comes out, bursts forth out, out of that seed. And when the embryo within the seed comes out, the roots go down, the stalk goes up, the branches go out. It works from the inside out. And so it is with God. He begins within our hearts and works from the inside out. By the way, it's interesting when you think about inside out, branching up and out, kind of does resemble a little bit of a cross. How that actually happens, though, when that seed is transformed is that the part of the seed around the embryo literally feeds itself to the embryo to the point that the embryo grows within the seed and bursts forth. In one sense, it could be said that the seed dies, giving of itself to the embryo within it so that the embryo might grow and burst forth from the seed. And I think this is some of what is wrapped up in what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 24, when he says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is telling the story of how a wheat seed grows into a wheat plant, which has many seeds. But there's no way of getting around for a seed to be fruitful without sacrifice, without death. And certainly that's the story in the picture of Jesus. He died giving of himself for the sake of nourishing us. And he's produced many seeds. And the thing about seeds is they produce more seeds after their own kind. Corn produces corn. Wheat produces wheat, right? They don't produce another. They produce of their own kind and so on and so forth. And Jesus produces Jesus, or at least it ought to, right? That's why he left us his spirit to work in us and in our lives. As followers of Jesus, Jesus produces Jesus in our lives. And we learn to die to ourselves for the sake of nourishing his will within us that will burst forth out of our lives and ultimately produce results that are world-changing. And God is turning those tiny beginnings into magnificent endings from the inside out and through sacrifice. You know, you can learn a lot from a mustard seed. And I pray that today each of us hears the voice of God speaking to us from the inside out, calling you and me to die to ourselves for the sake of something else deeply embedded within us so that it can be nourished and then ultimately released. Because God wants to do something within each of us, each of you, to ultimately change the world around you.